0: So, Ben, now that you have retired lawfare as the license plate, I think there's a new one that is up for grabs, negative one.
2: Yeah, I, uh, I'm trying to avoid conspicuous license plates these <laughs> days, but if I were looking for one that really had my you know, name on it, negative one is awesome.
0: So how does one get their caller ID to come up as negative one, as apparently the president does? Do, you do just we select know
3: her? it's the president? Okay, so well, to fill we don't know in, for sure. It's how a call to Giuliani appears. Negative one. And it's also how a call to Roger Stone appears, Wait, which do we has know that it, been attributed to but don't, It, it, it don't could all be calls-
4: from negative one, like from the world below. It could be.
2: Satan. Satan. Don't don't all calls from the New York Times come as one 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 one? Do they? I think so. Maybe the Washington Post just says hi. It's the Washington Post (laughs) calling. Maybe it's the New York Post. Negative one. Hey, there you
0: go. We solved the mystery. No, I think
2: New York Times calls calls out of the New York Times offices at least to my phones come as one 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 one. It's also not inconspicuous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Satan.
0: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the negative one edition. Negative one could be like a fragrance.
4: Ooh.
3: <laughs> we're going be like a, like a negative one, like a, like a negative person. Negative one. Like, not an optimist. Yeah. All right. <laughs> to be
0: clear, it is the, in the phone logs that came out, <laughs> eventually you'll figure out what the hell we're talking about if you don't know. It is negative sign number one, not negative one, which see, would be two on the not, nose.
2: N- no fragrances, guys, but you're all going to tweet <laughs> at Shane <laughs> What product should be marketed under the, under the name <gasps> yes. Negative One? So,
4: Tax yes. preparation software. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just go for it, people. The morning after pill. Let, let, let your minds run wild. Products to be done under the brand Negative One. Send them to Shane, and we will have fun with it next week. Foot exfoliator. <laughs> oh. <Gross.
0: laughs> I am here in the Negative One Jungle studio with, with the gang is all here, plus one, haha! Ha. I'm here with Hello. Tamara Kaufman with us, Susan e. with us? and Sophia Yan. She is here. She is not She's with- She's brought
3: her piano. <laughs> I take it with
1: me everywhere. <laughs>
3: she played us in
0: just now. She's going to play us out later. Um, Sophia, we are so glad you're here. It's nice to have you in person. Um, back from your reporting in Hong Kong and in China. To- Sophia is, of course, the China correspondent for The Telegraph. You are here. You are safe. We'll get to that in- in later in the podcast. Uh, but this week we are going to start with what else? What else? What else do we talk about anymore? The House Intelligence Committee has submitted its impeachment report. The Judiciary Committee. That's always a wearying phrase. Say Judiciary that again. Committee. Say it five times quickly. Judiciary Committee. Judiciary Committee.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like what you say to a baby. <laughs> if I were
0: testifying in this proceeding, that's what I would do. Just like, Mr.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> takes up the baton. We're
3: a little slap happy here I, I in the we, jungle studio. haven't studios. slept very it's much. It's the only coping mechanism <laughs> after is. that many hours of law professor testimony.
0: <sighs> no disrespect to law professors. Just, wow. A little bit. Yeah, a, a little bit wow. when, they were, when they were like, you'll each have 10 minutes like, oh, God. <laughs> I turned to a colleague and I said, we're going to die here. <laughs> Um, uh, we're going to talk about that in the first two segments and wrap up a lot of other stuff that's been happening, uh, especially since we were away for Thanksgiving. Merciful break that that was. In our third segment, uh, Sophie is going to talk about some of her amazing reporting uh, from Hong Kong and from China. Um, so let's start at the top. Uh, yesterday, Tuesday, the House Intel Committee released its impeachment report. I guess we should call we can call it that the in, the findings of its investigation would probably be the more accurate description. 300 pages, largely laying out Ben what we heard, and we'll get to some of the new bits of it and to negative one in a minute. But largely, what we heard in the testimony. But I'm curious, I know you guys at law first spent a lot of time with this. Did you come away? What, what were your impressions coming away from this? document and kind of how, if at all, frames or even resets the table in terms
2: of where the impeachment process is. So I don't think it resets it exactly, but I do think it gives you a pretty good window into what aspects of this story Adam Schiff and his staff think the Judiciary Committee should be focused on. So broadly speaking, they follow the Mueller report's trajectory in, a having a first section that deals with the underlying substantive conduct, which is to say in both cases kind of electoral interference and interactions between the U.S. and uh, Eastern European parties for that purpose, and then a second part, which is deals with obstruction of the investigation. I was a little bit surprised that the first half of it was kind of less focused on bribery and more focused on I wasn't it didn't lack a focus on potential bribery, but it was seemed more focused on you know soliciting electoral interference. And so you kind of get a window into what Schiff thinks the kind of fundamental issues are here. The report is quite professionally constructed under immense time constraints. Uh, it was Chef uh, staff did a very nice job putting it together, and I think it is really quite compelling. I, I, I read through it last night, and I, I'm really not sure. I mean, there are little holes you can poke in it here and there, and but I'm I, I don't see how anybody can read it. And say, oh, this seems just fine. There's sort of nothing to talk about here. So I think it does its job and now we're going to have a process to evaluate it and integrate it with the other material that members may want to consider in light of the impeachment authority.
0: Susan, one thing I wondered after watching the
2: impeachment um,
0: hearings, and granted, I was watching them wall to wall and it felt all kind of compressed and and I was a little bleary at the end of it. But I did wonder at the end, had Democrats sort of lost sight of what the central – problem was that was contained kind of so concisely in the whistleblower complaint of like leading at the top, inviting foreign interference. And had they gone down the roads of quid pro quos and got into sidetracks uh, and, you know, issues about, you know, smearing ambassadors and all that? Do you think that the report, does it, does it refocus the attention in a way and kind of bring Democrats back to what the core arguments are here?
3: I think it does. I think the report does a very good job at distilling down a narrative and placing the impeachable offense at the core. And the impeachable offense here is the president of the United States acting personally and through agents and intermediaries used official acts specifically the release of military aid in a White House meeting in order to – and conditioned those official acts in order to coerce a foreign leader into uh, undertaking political investigations for his political benefit and not for uh, proper purposes. And so, you know, that is sort of – that's that's the, the very clean sort of molten core – Everything else is about context necessary to understand what happened there. So the smear campaign against Ivanovich, it's not itself about the president, you know, committing an impeachable act. He has broad constitutional authority there. It's showing uh, that they needed to move this person out of the way uh, in order to sort of pave the way for Giuliani and others to undertake this kind of interference. It's demonstrating that if the president was, in fact, really concerned about corrupt He wouldn't have pushed this person out of the way or the definition of corruption the president is working with here is not the definition of corruption that everybody else understands is going on. And um, there there are various sort of pieces in which, you know, they're, they're bringing different parts of the story in. But the reason why those stories are being told is really just to give context to this one sort of core thing. And so I, I do think that after a little bit of sort of meandering and in some sense um, losing the thread, the, the report really nicely brings it back together. There is one place that I think uh, I agree with Ben. I think this is really an extraordinary effort uh, to make a very, very complicated story sort of digestible in this report. One place um, or quibble I have with it is a little bit, I think it would have been stronger had they been very, very clear, here are the uncontested facts, and here are the inferences we're making on top of that. And so, you know, just, you know, there there is a little bit of rhetoric, there is a little bit of sort of logical jumps and leaps. And so on one hand, that makes it um, a, a sort of compelling read, and it, it really does show you what their thinking is and where they're going with it. That said, whenever we sort of hold it up next to some... Something like the Mueller report, it lacks a little bit of that, like, pure authoritative fairness because, uh, uh, like, a fair-minded reader, I do think, has to sort of push, you know, poke at a few places and say, well, you know, that's this part's all uncontested, but this last 10% is where you're sort of making an inference. And so um, there's a little bit of sort of messiness there that I think we'll, we'll need to see unpacked. But there's a, a
4: clear choice um, manifested, I think, in the decision to do that, which is that you know this is a political process. There's no way to escape that. And although the intelligence committee's role here is to be a finder of fact for the judiciary committee, that was not ever going to happen in a consensus manner. This is a this is a report produced by the committee majority. And so they're leaning into the fact that there's no way they could write this that would forestall Republicans from claiming that it's making unfair inferences and being melodramatic and exaggerating for effect, they could probably write it in the driest, most sober terms you could imagine and
3: only use you know uncontested facts and that accusation would well, be...
0: Well, then Republicans right. would just call it underwhelming.
3: Yeah, right. But I think that is... I think Tammy really has put her finger on it, which is the other thing that the report doesn't do is it doesn't try and take on the Republican talking points yeah, at right. all. It doesn't try and address the conspiracy theories. It doesn't try and anticipate the counterarguments. It is... Just Just their side of the story. And I think it is a very conscious effort to basically say we are not engaging with this bad faith stuff. This is the case. Take it or leave it. And, and, uh, you know, the moderate middle squish Republican is not the audience for this document.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the right choice, honestly. You know, I think you can you can go down a rabbit hole with Devin Nunes and never emerge, uh, as many people have done. Um, but, I, you know, I think life is very—
3: As your attorney, Ben, you don't mean that literally. Otherwise, <laughs> Devin Nunes is going to sue us. <laughs> oh, well, we'll, he alleged we'll,
2: kidnapping. We'll,
3: we'll come back to that
2: later. But I uh, it did indeed mean it. <laughs> Figuratively, I'm um, just so we're clear. and um you know life is awfully short to spend it arguing with dilettantes and and I think the decision here was to present a clear articulation of the facts. I'm amused to to see you susan, um chiding them for having done a little bit of rhetoric here and there and a little bit of inferential stuff because I was actually surprised at how little of it there was in comparison to most congressional reports, which are, you know, often extremely tendentious. And I thought they were Well, I I completely agree with Susan that if the model is the Mueller report, it does make certain inferential leaps that Mueller never would let let his people do. On the other hand, if your point of comparison is the average congressional report, it's it's sort of a model of fairness compared to that.
0: I even wondered if perhaps they were trying to inoculate themselves from the, the rancorous brawl that is about to unfold perhaps in the Judiciary Committee, which is hardly a model of you know, sobriety compared to makes the House Intel Committee look like the House of Lords. But there's another piece that came out in the report that was new that I wanted to talk about for a bit, Uh, and it's where the title of our episode comes from. There were phone logs, um, which I don't think anyone was expecting. Um, It is a reminder, of course, that Congress has subpoena authority, and when they give subpoenas to phone companies, they have to hand over phone logs. Susan, I'm curious. It seems to me like what – just to recap for people, what they're revealing is more or less – I won't say, well, it's, OK, well, I guess we can say evidence, although it's circumstantial because we don't know what the content of the calls is. But multiple instances in which Rudy Giuliani is in communication with people in the White House, people in OMB, possibly the president, uh, as well as a conservative columnist who figures closely in this, as well as Devin Nunes, at key moments in the Ukraine affair. So Rudy Giuliani calling the White House seven times on the day or I think the day before Maria Ivanovich is fired uh, in the weeks leading up to... Joe Biden's uh, announcement for president, multiple calls between people in the White House and with this guy Lev Parnas of Lev and Igor fame and with John Solomon at the Hill. And then suddenly a John Solomon article bringing up the Ukraine story appears on the day that Biden announces. And then Giuliani calls negative one. And a few hours later, there's Trump on Hannity talking about the article. And clearly, you know, the members of the committee are trying to 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 link this up with hard evidence. But then they also throw this other curveball in, which is showing that Devin Nunes was in touch with Rudy Giuliani and Lev Parnas.
2: And going down rabbit holes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe literally in that case. I'm curious. It seemed to me that the inclusion of these phone records was obviously not expected. But it was a pretty strong additional piece of evidence that kind of felt – Not exactly like a mic drop, but something that was put in there as if to say, look, you know, we have other receipts here. And Rudy Giuliani, by the way, you know, you weren't called before this committee, but you're in the thick of it here. And Evan Nunes, too.
3: Yes, I think it did a couple things. So one, I think it does, it is very strong evidence that Rudy Giuliani is not completely freelancing. He is actually in contact with government officials. um, All the time. All the time. And at these key and critical moments, I actually think one of the biggest sort of question marks um, that come up from the phone call is these multiple calls he had with somebody at an OMB number. Um, OMB, of course, is the agency that actually is putting the hold on the aid in sort of functional terms. And that's a piece of the story. We actually don't have anything to Account for so we well. Know we about- do know that it was a political appointee at OMB who insisted on taking over
4: signing authority over the aid. So circumstantially, there's. You know, there's a story there.
3: Exactly. Oh, we definitely have a story about what's going on at OMB, but we'd already sort of known about Giuliani having contacts with state. We'd already assumed he'd been in contact with the president. We actually hadn't heard anything about Rudy Giuliani maybe talking to people at OMB. So look, these are call records. They aren't the content. You know, you have to sort of be careful to not make too many assumptions here. But but I do think it's, um, it's really strong evidence that there are really serious questions. Now, the newness thing, I think, is really fascinating as a matter of sort of strategy, because... Um, it's not plausible to me that the committee, um, that the majority, did not already have these records before the hearings last week, and so that means that the entire time that Devin Nunes is sitting there, just sniveling at Adam Schiff about his communications with the whistleblower, and we should be having Schiff testify, and you won't even, you know, we don't even have the ability to ask questions from somebody who's personally involved. Adam Schiff is sitting there with that just stone face the whole time, just thinking, I'm gonna get. The look
2: on Susan's face right now is perfect.
3: (laughs) Just like knowing knowing that Devin Nunes is in communications with individuals who come to be indicted, right? His staffers are in communication, right? But he is... At, in some sense, a fact witness, a legitimate fact witness, in all of this. One, I, I do think it it offers at least one plausible explanation for why exactly he's covering for the president so hard, and, and why he really views his role as as taking on the um, the role of the president's defense attorney. Um, and second, just not to the ex- not that Nunes had much credibility at all moving forward, but but just the idea that the Republicans truly are guilty of everything they accuse. The other side of, whether it's people like John Solomon, you know, being secretly in cahoots with people like Rudy Giuliani as they're, you know, pretending to be sort of neutral arbiters on, on the hill in Fox News and sort of doing the story, or Devin Nunes accusing Adam Schiff of exactly what he's guilty of, just the the sort of the perfect distillation of the hypocrisy of it all. You know, I, I do think it was a, a mic drop moment. I I, I don't think it's worth um, going very deeply down the rabbit hole. I know it's tempting, like let's Drag Devin Nunes in. I think it's probably something we want to leave by the wayside and focus on the president. But it was a very interesting and, and I think pretty effective strategic choice by Schiff.
4: Well, I, it's interesting that you're highlighting what it does to Nunes' credibility. I, I think, as a matter of political strategy, it has a different effect that may be more significant, which is that every time Devin Nunes goes on any interview, and wants to put out his talking points on his side of the story, he's going to be asked about his calls to with Rudy Giuliani. And he now cannot escape answering questions about his own role in this. And it it muddies his ability to put forward his own narrative. As far as the fact of the calls themselves, how surprised can we be? This is Devin Nunes, who was coordinating intelligence leaks with the White House in the very first weeks of the administration. This is the same guy, so it's all of a piece. He's been he he's been you know their inside guy on the Hill from day one.
0: Kind of explains also why it seems like Adam Schiff just constantly seems unfazed by Devin Nunes.
2: Yeah, I think. They used to have a sort of sparring situation going on, and now it's a one-way spar and one-way condescendingly ignore him. I do think there's one other element of this that is important, which relates specifically to Giuliani, which is because Giuliani has stiffed the House on potential testimony but has not – probably can't avoid some testimony in a Senate trial – I do think having a paper trail showing communications with a bunch of different actors at a bunch of different times sets up all sorts of lines of questioning when he is finally in a position where he has to testify that may become very significant. Susan, before we move on, I just want
0: to ask one question I've been – I've been dying actually to ask you. So John Solomon is a journalist – People can debate.
4: <laughs> or what, quotes. Technically, more technically a uh,
0: but Yes. But so I, 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 it raised a question for me. I know when the Department of Justice subpoenas phone records, particularly of a journalist, there's a whole set of mechanisms that come into play for how they can do that. Did they subpoena his phone records? And what is the issue here? Because I mean, it seems like even if they're only getting one person's phone records, you know – Putting in the, the metadata even of a journalist uh, as part of this investigation uh, struck me as a very significant thing. Had the Justice Department done that, I imagine it would have been a story on its own.
3: Yeah, so this is this is an interesting question. And I actually don't think you can tell purely from the record exactly what mechanism uh, uh, congressional committees used. So ordinarily, whenever you're thinking about sort of issuing subpoenas for call records under the Stored Communications Act, there's sort of a question about how exactly the congressional record fits within that. Um, of course, it appears as though Parnas and Fruman, I think at least Parnas has indicated that he's interested in cooperating. So it's possible that, uh, that he produced his own records and then um, the executive branch is allowed to share particular forms of information upon request with congressional investigators. So you could also imagine a situation in which, I don't know, for example, the Southern District of New York had issued subpoenas to get some records and they sort of sh- they sh- shared this with the congressional committees to pursue it to a request. So it's actually not entirely clear on its face. Um, you know, presumably they did use some form of lawful process in order, uh, in order to get these records. That said, to the extent that there's sort of procedures for the handling of journalists' communications, those only govern in the executive branch. And so members of Congress are not in any way bound by that. And indeed, the executive branch itself is not entirely, they're bound as a matter of policy, but but that's not the law. And they could alter those rules as they have done in the past if they wanted to.
0: Okay. So let's move on to some of the action today. We'll talk a little bit about that, but then we're going to talk about some other related threads in the story the past couple weeks. Um, So I don't think anybody was expecting great fireworks today as the Judiciary Committee heard from four congressional law scholars about sort of the constitutional underpinnings uh, in in the impeachment proceedings and what qualifies as a high crime and misdemeanor and what doesn't and how we should be thinking as a matter of history and a matter of precedent and even a matter of process given that we've been through a couple impeachments in the past several decades. Ben, did you think that it was – this was necessary for making the case as Democrats go forward or was this kind of a check the box? We did this because they did it in Clinton. They did it in
2: Nixon and we'll we'll move on now to the drafting of the articles. Much more the latter than the former. I don't think there was anything especially important about this. At least two of these law professors had testified as to their views on what is and isn't an impeachable offense 20 years ago and the uh, hearings on this subject when during the clinton impeachment were sort of combinations of uh, academic pomposity and partisan politics and this is like a mini version of that i thought it added relatively little signal that said for a lot of people who may be watching who know nothing about the history of the impeachment clauses you know, some of these scholars are quite reputable and serious and have done useful work in this subject. And it's not a bad way to have a kind of kind of explainer on the underlying law of the thing. I think it's sort of harmless. And uh, that said, I don't think it's use, especially useful or important in any particular respect. I do think what it gives Jerry Nadler is the ability to say – you know, we got all these facts, we got the best constitutional scholars to give their views about how we should think about this. And we did all this before we started drafting articles of impeachment.
4: Well, why why are the TV networks all covering it live? That's what I find to be an interesting choice, which is, you know, a choice by the media that covering a hearing of law professors, talking wonky impeachment history questions is worth live television minutes, which are very, very valuable?
0: Well, I think the cynical answer is if the ratings are good for the impeachment – It's more impeachment programming. I mean, it might be like the episode in the middle of the season that everyone thinks is the dumb episode, but like the
2: next one coming is really exciting. I don't know. I think they're all waiting for Pam Carlin and Mike Gerhardt to like drop the latest factual bomb on the president. (laughs) James
3: Madison said,
2: (laughs) and that'll be it. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I, I do think though it, it gives the sense that this story is continuing right and there's, there's a continuity it keeps yeah. people sort of on the hook and, and they aren't going to lose interest now And it's part of the event it's part of the proceeding yeah
0: It's also the first time the Judiciary Committee has met. So, this raises then the question of how, when we move on to the presumed drafting of the articles, which I think we're expecting will happen next week, if not maybe a little bit. It's it's probably already happening, honestly, um, is what's going to be in them. And, you know, Ben, you and Quinta Jurassic had an interesting piece, and I'd like you to speak to it, maybe, and Susan to talk to it as well. Maybe, Susan, you can start especially having come off of creating the report. I mean, you two have probably spent more time with the Mueller report than most people, uh, maybe save people who actually wrote the thing. What is the argument for including in the articles of impeachment, Susan, evidence of obstruction or other allegations of wrongdoing by the president in the articles of impeachment from the Mueller report?
3: So I think the argument is pretty straightforward, and that's that the Mueller report shows evidence of plainly impeachable conduct um, by the president, and it shows evidence of uh, plainly criminal and impeachable conduct by the president. And so to the extent that you don't include articles of impeachment related to that conduct, you are in a sense ratifying it and somehow saying this is not impeachable, and, and that is an incredibly consequential and dangerous thing for the future of the American president. Presidency. And so I think if you're going to go down this path of impeaching the, uh, impeaching the president and a potentially a perilous one, you know, or at least a, a painful one uh, for the country to go down, the idea that you're going to do it in this very, very narrow way and not include the you know, the very, very strong, uh, you know, charges of misconduct from the Mueller report. Now, not everything from the Mueller report, not things outside the Mueller report, like emoluments and family separations, but at a very minimum, the credible and clear allegations of of criminal misconduct related to obstruction of justice. um, I I think in some sense, it's a no brainer to do that. I I don't know why you wouldn't. And the idea that there's somehow somebody who's going to vote for the Ukraine stuff, but is going to be turned off if there's an if there's an obstruction of justice related to uh, to Mueller, I don't think that person exists, and and I think actually some of the testimony today, um, you know, with with Jonathan Turley, who gave um, quite a performance um, uh, in terms of sort of defending the president, uh, you know, the, to the extent that there's anybody who's going to try and hinge an acquittal vote on this notion that in the Ukraine uh, conduct there isn't a clear statutory violation, right? So you have to have a statutory crime to impeach. That's one argument. The clear rejoinder to that is, okay, here's a here's a a very very obvious statutory violation, and so why wouldn't you cover all your bases and actually, you know, holistically defend the future of the presidency by by, by demarcating this is unacceptable and impeachable conduct? But
0: isn't it? Aren't there though people in the Democratic Party and certainly maybe Nancy Pelosi is chiefly among them who 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 don't actually want to see a Mueller uh, article in there because of course they didn't begin an impeachment proceeding when the Mueller report came out and 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 Nancy Pelosi was extremely reluctant to go down this road. I think you could make the argument that she only decided to go into impeachment um when a few moderates in her caucus swayed the other way, and then the whistleblower complaint came out, and she felt she had no choice. So putting Mueller in there now, I wonder if it, if it's actually forcing
2: them to sort of swallow something that they were really trying to avoid, no? Yeah. So on the merits, I completely agree with Susan. Um, I think it, it would be a bad idea not to include an obstruction article from the Mueller material. That said, for exactly the reason that you just said, Shane, I would not be surprised if a certain moderate group of moderate Democrats, particularly people who are kind of the national security swing state Dems like Abigail Spanberger and Alyssa Slotkin, if some of them team up with Republicans on the House floor to kill stuff that is not immediately related to the Ukraine stuff— Because a bunch of these people, uh, as you say, did not support impeachment until the Ukraine stuff came up. And when they did, uh, when they flipped, they specifically tied it to the national security implications of the Ukraine matter. And so the question is, will they mind a kind of certain amount of mission creep back into the areas where they didn't support it and see a kind of, well, in for a dime, in for a dollar quality? Or will they say, hey, I support impeachment based on the Ukraine foreign policy misconduct but not about, you know, the prior stuff? And I don't think we know the answer to it. So, look, if the question is should the president be impeached over volume two in the Mueller report, the answer is yes. If the question is is there a democratic consensus for that, I think the answer to that is a little less clear.
4: Yeah. So I I think you're right to highlight that issue, Ben, but I don't expect that we'll see this come out in a floor fight. I think that this whole process has been very carefully um, managed by Speaker Pelosi and the party leadership and the committee chairman, everything is consensus based so far, every step of the way. And I think that the articles that emerge from the committee will likewise be workshopped on precisely the grounds that you're stating. Um, what what I find interesting is that the logic of Susan's argument to me applies not only to the Mueller report and the obstruction concerns, but even more clearly to things the president has done in public, that violate norms with implications for national security that about which there's no contestation of the facts, you know, like uh, the the Gallagher pardon, you know, which some have said, why shouldn't that be an article of impeachment? So if you go down the road of you need if you're going to impeach, you need to impeach on everything that violates norms that are destructive of the presidency. Then there like there's a very very long list. The bottom line here, I think, in terms of Decision making by the House majority on how to proceed is, you know, yeah, it might be about swing districts, but fundamentally, they know that impeachment is almost certainly not going to result in conviction in the Senate. And therefore, the point of this process is to put in front of the American people. A story that will shape their vote on Trump's reelection or not. And so the value of a narrow argument on impeachment is a a single clear message about why you can't let this guy have another term um, and why you need to vote for the Democrat. And I think that's what's important to the people in swing districts. I think that's what's important to the party leadership. And I think that's fundamentally why they're going to come down on the side of a narrow impeachment. They don't want to muddy the storyline.
3: Hey, look, just to clarify, I'm not. Um, I, I actually don't think that they should impeach for every violation of a norm or for things like pardoning Gallagher. I think they have to be really, really disciplined in not having anything included that is a mere policy difference. That's why I would not argue for including article related to volume one of the Mueller report. Volume two of the Mueller report describes presidential criminality. Um, And so I I think that we have to to recognize that as a fundamentally distinct thing from a breach of norms. We're talking about an, an actual clear breach of the law and breach of the law in a manner that makes accountability impossible. And so it leaves impeachment as the sole remedy, essentially. And so that's why I would put just obstruction of justice related to Mueller in sort of a separate category.
0: Let's talk about one more thread to this story that's been emerging and this kind of goes in the category of the stories that people want to tell. A number of Republicans, probably most prominently in recent Jays Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, have been embracing this, I don't even know what to, I don't want to call it even a theory. it is it is a false claim that Ukraine
4: it's a disinformation story well, is what well, it well, is well
0: yes well exactly um this this false claim that Ukraine meddled in the 2016 elections in some way that is analogous to what Russia did and the new york times has reported and my own reporting has confirmed this that the us intelligence community has assessed that this claim is actively something that was concocted by Russia and pushed out into the American political media and political bloodstream. It is exactly as you said, Tammy. It's a propaganda campaign. This is what our own intelligence agencies have concluded. Fiona Hill all but said this. Well, she did say uh, well, she this. She did say, she just didn't <laughs> say, and the intelligence shows right. it, right? Exactly, because she didn't want to talk about something that was classified. But it's been you know, astonishing to me how... Quickly, this has taken hold, despite the fact that there is just—I mean—incontrovertible evidence at this point, or at least, at least, I would say, unimpeachable statements from very credible people. Like, you don't see anybody on the Republican side coming out and saying, "Oh no, no, no! I've read the intelligence reporting, and they're wrong. It's not a Russian propaganda plot." Um, so, Tammy, I mean, I, I guess my first question is like, what the hell is happening here? I mean, this is this this is genuinely astonishing to me. It seems like. Not just this isn't just spin. We are deviating from the facts in evidence and inventing or adopting stories that are not true to try and make those become the dominant narrative. That's That seems to me a whole different level of spin and deflection than we're used to in American politics.
4: Well, so I, I think it's of a piece with the broader sort of ways in which our politics has come to rely on people's mistrust of what were previously authoritative sources of fact like you know mistrust of the media mistrust of public institutions creates the opening for that and then the polarization of our politics creates the incentive for it and then you know the russians insert these ideas and people pick them up because it's in their interest to do so and so what is evident um when you pe- see people repeating these stories is the shamelessness of it they Don't know whether it's true or maybe they know it's not true. They don't care. That is not the point. Um, The point is they can say whatever they want because the mere saying of it creates a narrative with some political momentum behind it for them and for their supporters. That is the only purpose. It has nothing to do with the reality of the case. And you know, and that's why I think that we've gotten to a point where it's not enough to have the media fact check in real time every time a Republican you know, in an interview uh, spouts this conspiracy theory for the media to say immediately, well, the intelligence community disagrees or there's reporting that that's not true or whatever, because that doesn't matter to the listeners in the current environment. Um, we're too tribal for that. And it actually goes back to the strategy that Schiff adopted in the impeachment report that he sent out. Like, I'm not going to address this other stuff. I'm just going to make sure my own narrative is crystal clear and as compelling as possible. It's a shouting match. That's where we're at. We're at a shouting match. And, you know, Mitt Romney is, I think, the one senator – Republican senator who has come out and explicitly said, this is not true um, and we should stop saying this and I don't expect we're going to see anybody else.
3: But like, it also allows sort of the, the grain of truth and the intentional obfuscation also allows uh, people like, um, like Kennedy and, and Richard Burr to play a very specific type of game. So there is one, a fully debunked conspiracy theory with absolutely no basis in reality, the crowd strike Ukrainians hacking the DNC server. That's now melded within the Republican Party into this separate argument that the Ukrainians attempted to interfere on in the U.S. election, namely by uh, making, by releasing information related to Paul Manafort, the sort of Black Ledger information, and by actually responding to in a public op-ed comments that then-candidate Trump had made. So I think what we're seeing is people like Richard Byrne Kennedy sort of saying, well, look, we've been talking about election interference Now, inappropriate it is for any foreign government to be weighing in on U.S. elections. Here's a foreign government. They're clear doing stuff to influence an election. Yeah, they don't
2: do that with Bibi Netanyahu, though, do they? Right,
3: but but the difference, of course, is it's one thing for a government speaking in its own voice, advocating for its own national interest in a transparent way to comment on an election, to even have a preference in an election. Barack Obama wrote an op-ed against Brexit. That's not election interference. It's just diplomacy. The difference is the covert influence operation that violates U.S. law. And so what you see are people like Burr, who I think fancy themselves sort of, you know, principled actors in all of this, allowing themselves to sort of sh- subtly do these little shifts and these little rhetorical moves. And so the thing that they're saying, well, plainly, the Ukrainians, maybe not to the same degree, but they were trying to interfere in election. Meanwhile, it's like it's it's BS. It's not meant to, right? It, it's meant to, to have just enough of a grain of truth to, to confuse people and to make it seem as though everything is equivalent here when, when they know that it isn't.
4: Yeah, it reminds me of when Trump said in an interview during the 2016 campaign, well, we kill journalists too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right? It's a way ultimately whether this is the intention or not. And I suspect in some cases, as it, with which Burr, it's not, it also minimizes the seriousness of what Russia yeah, did in exactly. 2016.
3: Everybody does it. Everybody yeah.
0: does it. Just like the president told the Russian ambassador and foreign minister. I
1: was just wondering why you guys all think it's taken so long for this impeachment inquiry to get started. I mean, there's been plenty of things that Trump's done that could have – led us to this point. Oh, like why earlier. now? Yeah, why exactly. This? Why this issue? I
0: I think a lot about this. And having played some role in the, I guess, the uh, the the lighting of the fuse in this, um, it happened extremely quickly. And all of the relevant facts came out within the period of a week. I mean, I was stunned. When we were first breaking stories about what the whistleblower complaint was about in the broad strokes, nobody expected that the White House would just turn around and release a partial transcript of the president's call that was the s- center of the complaint. And then we would see the complaint itself in a matter of days. It's like if Nixon had released the tapes at the beginning of Watergate. And I think we always used to talk about how if the Mueller report just came at once and nobody knew the facts, it would be so overwhelming and it would be stunning that it would force an action. And I think that's what happened
2: here.
3: I, have a, uh, I agree with all of that. I have one other explanation, and that's that this is worse. This is not just the worst thing Donald Trump has ever done. It's the worst thing an American president has done. And that's not an exaggeration or like a pounding on the table. What we are talking about is one of the gravest violations of the public trust. And I mean, you can sort of say Nixon and Vietnam. I mean, there, there are there are other things that, that might sort of uh, occupy yeah, that trail number. of tears
2: Eshel. was pretty bad.
3: But in terms of the in- the impeachable offense and the using the powers of the office to embrace the public trust. I'm not saying it's the worst thing that an, an American president has ever done in terms of executing US policy, but in terms of the way we think about abuse of the office and what impeachment is for, I, I actually think this is of a categorically different type um, and, and that that is part of why it, it moved the ball here. Yeah, I agree with that completely.
0: All right, Sophia, you are here. You are safe.
1: I am here. You were kidnapped Wait, Can I do that in a deeper voice? <gasps> I am here. <laughs> you do not have a gas mask with you. I don't. In Washington, really you don't need one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you know,
1: I feel like who needs CrossFit when you can cover the Hong Kong protests? <laughs> <laughs> no, but really. Like
0: <laughs> I would imagine it's actually a great form of exercise to be running around to cover police, running from police, getting out of the way of protesters and the like. Um, so I, we want to talk about uh, a number of your stories. And, and let's start with this this great scoop that you had uh, recently about this uh, employee of the, the UK's consulate in Hong Kong, right? Uh, this man named Simon Cheng Monkit. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, who? Well, tell us his story because he was one day uh, rushing to catch a train home in Hong Kong, uh, and then something absolutely harrowing and extraordinary happened to him. And you really had the first in-depth interview about what that was. So, so first, just tell us who he was and the ordeal that he went through.
1: Yeah. So Simon Chang was a trade and trade and investment officer in the UK consulate. In Hong Kong, and he was in China, in mainland. Is he U.S.
0: Uh, China, sorry, British citizen or Chinese citizen? He's
1: a Hong Kong resident, it, so okay. not a British citizen. So he was in China for a one-day business trip, and on his way back, he was you know he was obviously nervous about going. I mean, China does things that we don't do here. <laughs> um, so on his way back, he was stopped by police, and they took him in for questioning. They didn't really tell him why, and that turned into this two-week-long ordeal where they. You know, state security, these secret police in China, they were questioning him and trying to get him to confess that the British government was involved in supporting the protests in Hong Kong. You know, like Beijing's been talking so long all this time about how foreign governments are supporting the unrest as a way to destabilize China. And it's all about this, you know, foreign interference and foreign black hands. And there's no sense that perhaps what Beijing's done all these years, May possibly have had a little bit of impact on how people feel in Hong Kong. So, you know, it's like really interesting because it's a an insane human rights story. I mean, the way he was treated, tortured and this kind of psychological intimidation. And when we say torture, we
0: mean straight up physically torture, straight up physical
1: torture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was made to sit in these stress positions. He had to say things like report my master if he wanted to say anything they would hit him if he moved because he was uncomfortable from the stress positions i mean just awful lights on all the time solitary confinement and they did things like when they would transfer him to different secret locations you know once they were playing this song a pop song from a hong kong band where the lyrics are about a person who's going to leave and not see their family for a really long time i mean it's this kind of like mental game. game yeah
4: and I mean, the the accusation by an autocratic government that foreign governments are behind expressions of domestic dissent, this is a classic for dictatorships, right? It's never that there's actually sincere sentiment against the government inside the country. That would be impossible. So it must come from outside. Um, but I think what's particularly – what's notable about this story is that he's a Hong Kong resident working for a foreign embassy. And that's always a very vulnerable position. And yet every Western government, every government has local employees working with them on staff. And, you know, it's interesting, particularly because of the British role in Hong Kong for so long, it probably has many more Hong Kong residents working in its embassy than other embassies do. And, you know, and yet when all of this started, did those embassies not think about the safety of those people. I mean, why did they send him into China in the first place? Why, You know, what did he say about the role of the British government in his situation?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's in those jobs. I mean, it's pretty normal to travel back and forth between Hong Kong and Shenzhen. It's, just, it's like a it's just a couple minutes on the high speed train. I mean, it's like next to it's just next door. I mean, definitely they take a lot of care to try to make sure that their local employees are safe. But this was something that nobody could really predict. I mean, this is, they just nabbed him. You know, For whatever reason, he was on the radar. Maybe the Chinese government took advantage of the fact that this guy was here. Like, who knows? I mean, I think his story gives us a lot of insight into how China operates because they have an idea, the government, and they try to stand it up, right, which is what they were trying to do with him. They really felt like the British government and the American government had some involvement in the protest, And what they were trying to get Simon to admit to was that there was some link, however tenuous, you know, and then they could just take that story and wave it around and be like, see, coerce it from him and then, you know, promote it. And,
2: And do you think they are actually deluding themselves that there is really this link? Or do you think they were trying to coerce a confession to establish a link that they in fact know does not exist? In other words, is this is this a case where they're trying to fabricate a, an alternative story? Or is this a case where they've convinced themselves that the evil hand of the CIA or, or the British is behind this, and they're trying to prove themselves right?
1: Yeah, I think I think they're definitely trying to prove themselves right. I mean, there's that fear that a foreign government would be involved in this. I mean, that's always been around for China. Like, like Tammy said before, I mean, dictators, they just... They don't want anyone to come into their little playground. So I think with China, they were really trying to stand up this idea that they already had in their mind. But also, you know, the way that they have gone about it. I mean, just the fact that they thought they could do this to somebody who worked for a foreign government, the fact that they thought this wouldn't come out. I mean, it says a lot, right? Like it's I guess in a way it's too scary for them to consider the alternative, which is that they potentially have had impact on how people feel about the Chinese Communist Party. So
0: speaking, look, looking at this incident <clears throat> as a kind of micro example of human rights abuse, then there's the broader issues of what's going on in Hong Kong, and I want to come back to the the protests in a minute. But I also want to talk about the reporting that you've done on the Uyghurs because this is this is an issue that is more and more coming to light, and is a to my mind, is a scale of human rights abuse and oppression that is on a ghastly, systemic, almost industrial level that is shocking to me that it's escaping so much attention in this country, which has its own history of, you know, and awareness of these kinds of unbelievable crimes being perpetrated on people. So talk about your experience going out to this facility and what you uncovered. And then we'll finally get to the story of your kidnapping, <laughs> which obviously worked out OK since right you're here. Life. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the Chinese government they, they do so much to frustrate foreign reporters' work, but we can get to that later. Um yeah, going to Xinjiang, I mean I've I've spent time in Central Asia and Kazakhstan talking to family members who have had relatives detained. And, and these also- are these
0: massive camps where these these Uyghurs are taken away from their communities and put in for job training and retraining essentially yeah. the concentration camps yeah.
1: yeah i mean the estimates vary anywhere from one to three million um the u.n the u.s they've put out some numbers about how many they think have gone through these camps i mean it's it's a, a large part of the population and the chinese government says it's because they're trying to de-radicalize people they're worried about terrorism and certainly there have been attacks in china just as there have in other places in the world but their response is very heavy-handed and it's like a one-size-fits-all kind of thing and Nobody is really allowed to. You can't pray. You can't grow a beard. I mean, that's a sign that you're a, a ter- quote unquote terrorist. No headscarves. If you're like you know keep you know eating halal, like that's not okay. Even at the mosques, you see surveillance cameras everywhere. I mean, facial recognition surveillance cameras.
0: Oh, and there and there, it's I think from the reporting we've seen, they are clearly testing and perfecting and developing mass scale facial recognition on the Uyghurs. Like they're yeah. using them as the guinea pigs for this.
1: Yeah, and it's starting to spread already to other parts of China. Like I've uh, I boarded a plane <laughs> with just facial recognition. I got to the gate. I tried to hand over my boarding pass, and the lady just waved oh, a hand at God. me. And this thing scanned my face. Does that mean if the I get a opened. Sophia
2: Yan mask, I can, yes. I can use yeah, your
4: plane tickets? You, too, <laughs> can get tailed by Chinese <laughs> internal security. Hello,
0: <laughs> so you went out to cover one of these facilities where I think you had been – am I right? You were covering reports that some of these people had been forced to eat pork, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. which, of course, would be you know, a, a violation of their, of their tenants. And what happened when you got there?
1: Well, so we – from the moment we got to the airport, we were stopped on the way out. So when you when you work as a journalist and you have a journalist visa in China and you book any travel – I mean, I use my passport number linked to my visa. So they know where I'm coming, when I, where I'm going all the time. So in your cell phone, you know, your SIM card is linked to your real name, your real identification. So they know everything basically. I assume that they're tracking me digitally, physically. So we were stopped immediately. I was with a photographer. And it's often really obvious. These guys kind of follow you around. They'll stop you, check your ID, kind of thing, and then let you go. But it's like kind of clunky. It's not the smoothest of operations. It's like these military-age men with sunglasses and jackets, and you walk past me, like make a phone call. God, it's like <laughs> yeah. the '80s in Berlin. Yeah. I mean, please. I take a lot of selfies with them in the background. I'll, I'll show you guys one. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> I'm always like, check out that guy in the back. <laughs> your object lesson. Yeah. So we were followed everywhere, you know, followed with unmarked cars. And every time we tried to get in a taxi, somebody would ring ring the driver up and ask where we were going. So they were speaking in Uyghur, which I which I can't understand, but the destination was close was either in Mandarin or close enough to Mandarin that I could understand, which was the destination we'd given the driver. And of course, like we don't we we have to try to think about these drivers who are taking us.
4: You don't want them to be in danger.
1: Exactly, because they don't, I mean, they don't know who we are when we get in this cab, right? But the fact that we were followed so closely that every time, within a few seconds, maybe almost a minute, that somebody could ring the driver up because they knew where we were. I mean, it just tells you how closely we're being followed, right? So uh, twice we were in one of these taxis and the driver got a call and turned around and wouldn't take us where we wanted to go. Like, like one guy just made a total UE on the highway and we just started speeding back the other way. You know, it's just really nuts. And then um, a police van, one of these cars, the second time after this, we decided to just walk. But the police van was, like, on the highway speeding next to us, like, screaming something at the driver. And he wouldn't stop. We were we didn't know anywhere we were going, where they were maybe telling him to take the two of us. And we were two women. So both the photographer and I opened the back seat doors just to kind of get the driver to slow down a little bit. And then we yeah. just had to jump out. Wow. It was nuts. You know, like, that's, yeah. So then we walked. We walked a lot. <laughs>
4: We but didn't they didn't, they didn't try to pick you up off the street as you were walking to prevent you going.
1: No, which was really interesting. And I think that they, they didn't realize when we got to this one particular facility, like we tried a couple of places, but we were stopped a number of times. And this time we were successful, I think, because we were able to find – we were on foot. And I think they didn't expect us to show up so quickly maybe because when we showed up there were some minders kind of trying to set up a roadblock they said that there was like some work some I think it was the electric line or something like that something clear I mean clearly there was no work going on and I was like well there's a a watchtower over there (laughs) can you tell me what that is Uh you know I mean it's just amazing the level of attention they put on foreign reporters trying to do anything I always joke that it's like a jobs program like keep these like (laughs) young men
0: sounds like (laughs) I think that's right well let's talk just a little bit about Hong Kong, too. And I mean, you've done a lot of work, I mean, not just covering the protests, I mean, you are out there covering the protests, you're out there with a mask, and you are in the middle of all of the protests and, and the upheaval and the tumult of that. One thing I've been wanting to ask you is, what is the awareness or the sense among these protesters about what I think many people here would perceive of the administration's apathy towards the movement that is going on there uh, or the way that maybe they are being used kind of uh, as a bargaining chip now I know the you know the, the administration just took a step uh, <clears throat> related to the protest that that actually uh, really annoyed China and it was not what they wanted but uh, I'm curious how do they think about things that Donald Trump says uh, do they want to see more demonstrable support from the United States or Are they just like, we're dealing with our own thing and focused on our own lives here, and that's a secondary concern?
1: I think the protesters definitely want more support. I mean, one really interesting feature that we've seen over the last six months in the street is that they've been always waving these foreign flags, the American flag, the British flag. That, of course, lets Beijing say, oh, foreign interference, you know. But for the protesters, what they're trying to do is draw attention from foreign governments to help support their cause, however that might be, you know, banning crowd control gear or like um, exports of tear gas, things like that. So I think that they really want that sort of understanding. And I think they want – you know, a lot of them say that they're kind of – they're like willing to die for the cause and that they know they're up against – you know, this is the Chinese Communist Party. This is not like some piddly fight, right? They know they're up against something really major and they know that the chance that they might win is fairly small, but they think that they need to make a stand and speak their voice. And they just want everybody to understand why they're doing it and also why they're using so much violence,
0: what do they think about what comes next? I mean, if they're it, it, not that they that they've given up, but if they've already understood that this is Goliath and and you know they are not going to be David in this situation, are they thinking about their lives after this? I mean, these are young people who, you know, we've seen what the Chinese do with people who you know are there ostensibly working for a foreign government and you would think have some protection. I mean, do they think they're going to be able to go back to their normal lives or? Do they not even – can you not even see that far ahead when you're in this?
1: I think the protesters can't see that far ahead. Yeah. You know, they're still – they're so stuck in the day-to-day right now trying to send this message to the world and try to figure out how to organize. I mean it's it's pretty impressive really how they've been able to keep this going for so long. And yeah. amazingly, somehow public sentiment is still with them despite all this crazy chaos and destruction of the city. You know, there's there's just a real sense that, you know, some of the older generation, they've said to me that they feel like it's – They're they're sad that their kids, the youths, are the ones that have to come out and stand and do this. They're like, we we should have done more our time. You know, it's an interesting sentiment.
2: And how do you read the elections the other day? I mean, they played internationally as a huge uh, vote of confidence in the protesters and vote of no confidence in Beijing. What's the best way for us to understand that? And how is it being understood in Beijing?
1: The sentiment, this idea that Hong Kong does not want to be under Beijing's thumb, I mean, that's definitely not going to go away. So even if the protests, let's say they were to die down tomorrow, that doesn't mean that they won't spark again because of some other issue. I mean, we've seen protests in Hong Kong every couple of years, ever since the territory was returned to Beijing in 1997. And so the period of time between the protests get smaller and smaller. So I think even if things die down, I mean, this election result just shows that that sentiment is not definitely not going away. In fact, it's getting stronger than ever. And there were a lot of first-time candidates running and, you know, they they clearly swept it all, you know. So Beijing, I think, really misread the Hong Kong situation. Mm.
0: All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Ben, since we're on the subject of Sophia, would you like to share your object lesson?
1: Yeah. My object
2: <laughs> lesson is Sophia <laughs> because um, ever <laughs> since we started doing the Lawfare podcast and Rational Security— People have been tweeting at me, who the heck is Sophia Yan and why does she seem to be at once a pianist for Lawfare and a China correspondent for first Bloomberg and then CNN <laughs> and then The Telegraph? And so there, we have owed the uh, Lawfare, broader Lawfare, rational security listening community an explanation for Sophia for a long time. And so here it is, Sophia. Explain your double life. How how did it come about? (laughs) What's the origin story?
1: Oh, my gosh. Where do we start? Well, I always have a piano. (laughs) That's pretty important. And and for a while, it was our piano. (laughs) Yeah, for a while, it was your piano. Right. Well, how did you
0: you come to meet Ben and Tammy? Yes.
1: Well, Ben and Tammy are alums of where I went to school, Oberlin College. Great school. (laughs) Out in the middle of the cornfields of Ohio. Just a little shout out for our lovely alma mater. Yeah, I mean, I was starting out. I had no money. They had a a We had a spare bedroom in the basement. basement. (laughs) That's how it started. And they also had a piano, which was great. (laughs) (laughs) It was great for us, too, because
4: Sophia is a virtuoso, as you all hear every week. And she would practice daily, which is something that delighted both our children and our then puppy, who would lay at Sophia's feet while she played the piano.
1: Oh, Gergie, I miss Gergie.
2: And so, Sophia uh, was that rare thing in Oberlin College, which is a double degree student. She took a degree in piano and a degree in
1: what was your government, was, right? English. Oh, English. Sure. And yeah. so, totally, always had totally these so.
2: kind of two tracks: <laughs> piano and and journalism. <laughs> and initially came and stayed at our house while interning for Time Magazine. Yes, is that' right. <laughs> And so when we started the Lawfare podcast, I... Plopped a. I, we needed some intro music for it, and this was a uh, shout out to Alan Rosenstein, who was kind of the godfather of the Lawfare podcast. Said Ben, you need to get me some music, so I <laughs> called up Sophia and said, you know, get your ass over to, to, to actually it was at my parents' yes, house, was it right? Your
1: parents' house. And
2: I was, so we <laughs> like put a little recorder on top of the piano, and if you go back to the early days of the Lawfare podcast, you'll see hear a faint echo in in that recording because that was a little. Handheld recording the first episode of the Lawfare podcast is Sophia playing the piano and Shane Harris talking about a paper that he wrote for us on drone strikes that's on, on right. drones if I drone. episode number you, one you episode number one, so we have like a Negative lot of one. the history of lawfare podcasting in the jungle studio today, and <laughs> that is my object lesson Wow that's
0: good now you know the origin story uh, Susan, what's your object?
3: My object lesson are The world's most valuable set of feelings. (laughs) Feelings are important. Yes. We should value them. Um, And Devin Nunes' feelings (laughs) and reputation are now valued at $910 million. Because if you add up, um, so Mr. Nunes uh, sued CNN yesterday. Um, uh, to the tune of $435 million, <laughs> um, which added to his lawsuits against Ryan Lizza, Politico, and the Fresno Bee and a fake parody cow on Twitter, um, which are $250 million, $75 million, and $150 million, respectively, um, all totaled up. That means that currently, Devin Nunes is litigating over $910 million worth of hurt feelings. Um, and I just think in the A, of triggered and snowflakes and the the fuck your feelings crowd. Um I just want to commend Devin Nunes on, you know, valuing feelings for for what they are and showing how important and very very expensive and um obviously he has a sterling sterling reputation. Um and I just wonder who will be the lucky journalist. Um, who really pushes him over the $1 billion oh. of feelings and reputation line. Oh. Um, because if people don't start speaking out against this a little bit more clearly, we will 100% get to that point. So anti-slap laws. People. Someone
2: needs a hug, Devin. Oh. Just saying, if you have not read the cow's motion to dismiss oh, in Devin Nunes' lawsuit— Uh, It is a thing of cosmic beauty. Uh, (laughs) The following excerpt will give you a flavor. Quote, no reasonable person would believe that Devin Nunez's cow actually has a Twitter account or that the hyperbole, satire and cow related jokes it posts are serious facts. It is self-evident that cows are domesticated livestock animals and do not have intelligence, language or opposable digits needed to operate a Twitter account. Defendant David Nunez's mom likewise posts satirical patronizing, nagging, mothering comments which ostensibly treat Mr. Nunez as a misbehaving child. <laughs> He's very upset.
4: <laughs> <laughs> You're being
2: very mean.
4: Uh, what an age we live in. Oh, huh?
0: Wow. Move the over. The beauty of it. Goodness gracious. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. We're here from the Thanksgiving hangover and we're back in the swing of it. But it's time to go. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find Devin Nunes' challenge coins and milk jugs. Awesome. (laughs) Lawfare, sue me, dot Nunes. Dot com.
2: <laughs> the lawfare store.com <laughs>
0: you can follow us on Twitter at RATL security you can find us on Facebook you can download the podcast from all of your favorite podcasting apps and when you do please do leave a rating and review it really helps other people find the show and we appreciate it our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel the show was produced and edited by Jen Padya Howell music this week by Rudy Giuliani and the negative ones
3: Ah. Nice. What kind of music is it? Emo. It's, it's emo. emo. It's so <laughs> emo.
0: With well, Sophia, would you play keys for this? Would you back them up? <laughs> yeah. Totally.
2: Okay. Good. <laughs> and
4: Devin Nunes does the backup vocals. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just whimpering in the background. Famous number one song by Rudy Giuliani and the Negative Ones. They hurt my feelings. Oh.
0: <laughs> well, on behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Woodis, Susan Hennessy, Ben Woodis, and the amazing Sophia Yan, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. I promise. See you later. Bye.